0: I'd like to acknowledge Australia's First Nation people as the traditional custodians of the land and for this episode in particular, the Wurundjeri Nation. I pay my respects to their Elders past, present and emerging.
1: Not all the wines are the same and that's a good thing, Um, but we do do a lot of benchmarking together and talk about what the region can do well and should do better and can... um, can focus on and what maybe doesn't work here. Um, So it's not about everyone making the same wine, but it's about everyone understanding the terroir they're in and then making their own signature wines that are shaped by that terroir in a positive way.
0: This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Peter Logan has never kowtowed to others' will. He followed his nose and taste, which has landed him in the Central Ranges of New South Wales, telling his own unique tale of adventure. Logan Wines is the first cellar door you'll see as you drive from Sydney, and it sets the scene for quality and pedigree in the region of Mudgee. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Shante. Pleasure to be here. It's so lovely to finally talk to you. I've long been a fan of your wines. Tell me a little bit about your ever first memory of wine. Ah,
1: well, my first ever memory of wine, memory, wow, that um, I was born in 1969, uh, so I don't remember the 60s, but um, I do remember the heyday of the goon bag as my parents' parties um, uh, being down, particularly down, I remember they'd always have barbecues, picnics down at Shelley Beach at Manly, where I lived in Northbridge, uh, not in Sydney, sorry, I lived in Sydney, and we... um, They'd always go down to Shelly Beach for family picnics and then I remember they'd have like, you know, a goon bag of of cooler bar or something, uh, and that'd get finished and then we would blow as the kids, we would then inflate it, blow it up, and then play footy with it. Um so that's probably my and a little bit would come out <laughs> when you of the of that nozzle when you would blow it up and that's probably my my earliest taste of wine, I guess. All the fruit flavours. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, all the fruit flavours. Um, I think they were all made out of sweet Riesling and stuff, uh, sweet, sweet semion, even I think in those mm. days
0: and maybe a bit of sweet Riesling. Yeah, maybe a bit of Columbard in there as well. <laughs> Probably, yeah. <laughs> I'd like to say, well, it's only up from there, but that's a pretty nice memory because you're it with family and being outdoors and playing footy, so it's a pretty good first memory, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is, and a great Aussie invention, the goon bag. So, um, yes, uh, yeah, it is a good, it is a good memory. Um, although I think the uh, the quality of the wine went up from there.
0: Yes, yeah, it's a good platform to to lay down some some memories, but only for for quality going upwards. Now, you studied biology and chemistry. Have you always been interested in the kind of sciences? Yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah,
1: I. Um, I wanted, growing up, I wanted to be like a a park ranger. I mean, I guess we don't call them park rangers in Australia, but, you know, I wanted to work for national parks um, and, uh, you know, preserve beautiful tracts of land and animals in them and stuff. Um, And that's why I studied biology and chemistry and all that. Um, But it wasn't to be. When I I finished uh, my degree, which was in 1991, there was like extremely high unemployment at the time and you needed to have a PhD or a a, um, master's to to even get an interview with the national parks and I wasn't that kind of, I wasn't a postgraduate kind of guy. Um, So, uh, fell into, weirdly, I fell into pharmaceuticals for a while, which is, never on my radar, but pharmaceutical companies will always take you, uh, to work for free because they'll get any, take anything they can for free. Um, and so I did that just to get something on my CV and after a while realized it wasn't for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of a, a bit of a rite of passage, I think in Australia to, to go down one path at university and then either defer or, or, or swap your majors at some point. So, uh, I'm very glad that you did.
1: Yes, I am too. Well, although science was a, a great basis for my for winemaking, so you don't need science for winemaking, but it does make, for me, it makes aspects of the job easier. Um, and, you know, then I was able to then just do a postgraduate diploma in winemaking, which is just one year to get, like, the winemaking side of a, of an applied science degree. So that, you know, ended up all all uh, sort of working hand in hand well without me sort of knowing it at the time.
0: And what about your family? What kind of uh, realms did they kind of work in? Uh,
1: Well, my dad was an accountant. So, when I was a little kid, I just wanted to be an accountant who also played um, rugby for Australia in winter and cricket for Australia in summer. Um, But um, in the end, none of those three things happened. Um, he did teach me how to read the, the uh, profit and loss and the balance sheet, though, which is a very valuable um, talent to have when you run your own business. Um, and um, my brother, older brother, he's an advertising copywriter, so very different to me, but he's also been very handy. He writes all our back labels and any uh, all our information for the websites and that sort of stuff
0: yes now these are handy people to have around you've definitely done well in terms of surrounding yourself with well their family so you don't have a choice but yeah being able to put them to use for sure oh yeah
1: yeah they're they're, they've been very useful my family
0: Tell me a bit about what did you learn at kind of college in that kind of winemaking course? What what did you take away from them? Was that where you got inspiration because of what you wanted to kind of do when you opened your own business or, or what were the effects of, of college?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, probably a few things. Um, certainly um, one big thing was that it um, – so before going to – I was like in one of the first groups that went through – wasn't in Roseworthy anymore and was at Adelaide Uni Um, and um, besides, besides, you know, meeting a lot of like-minded people, people who are just really into wine and winemaking and I'd only done one vintage, uh, I'd done a vintage to see if I liked it and I did and then went down and did the graduate diploma Um, and what it really did was uh, sort of solidify for me that I was on the right track. Um, I really in my for, in my initial science degree, you know, I scraped through. I got by, but you know, I I never set the world on fire. No, no, um, no. Lecturer was having me in their sights to to do some special project or anything. Um, but um, but I got through. Um, but once I did, when I studied. Wine, the winemaking graduate diploma, I just found it a breeze. I found it so easy, and for me, I'd never really no study had ever been that easy for me in the past, which made me made me realise that I was I was doing the right thing. I I had an aptitude for it and and a, a love for it, and it was it, it all made sense to me. So that was probably the biggest thing it did. Of course, I learnt a lot as well. Um, you know, the from 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 business side of it to um, uh, the the, you know, uh, taste the, the, the sensory side, you know, just the de- which I was always doing when you're drinking wine, you're looking at that, but the sort of the discipline to, to really focus and pick things apart. That was that was really important. I think the way they do that and just changing acids and alcohols by a minute, minute amount, and you've got to focus on what the difference is, is is a really good way to train your palate in a way that the drinker doesn't need to and shouldn't, because it'll take the fun out of it for them. But the winemaker does need to um, know that. So that was that was very handy. Uh, of course, all the science side of it was um, you know really important too. So. Um, and and really all the people you meet there who you will meet again later in life and help each other out and that sort of stuff
0: yeah that that community and that connection to the people as you just begin is often comes back around full circle and and yeah it's always always very important i think those those people that you meet in in those times now, when you started out making wine for yourself, tell me what were those first wines that you made like? Well, the first wine I
1: made was actually at uni and I uh, it was our university wine and I made it with uh, Ben Kane, who's now with his wife Sarah, the owner of Duke's Vineyard in um, uh, Great Southern and um, – and, um, Paul Smith, who has been winemaker at Wirra, Wirra and a lot of places somewhere in McLaren Vale at the moment, but I'm not sure where. Um, and the three of us made absolutely terrible wine. Um, we we made a semillon that we tried to make in a hunter style and we picked it far too early and didn't really know what we were doing with it and it turned into battery, battery acid pretty well. And we made a Shiraz that really... Um, we got a bad bacterial um, thing going on with it. Um, we were a bit sort of loosey-goosey in our approach to it. Um, so, uh, but we all, all three of us learnt from that and we went on to it. We didn't drink much of those wines, but we went on to make much better wine respectively in our three careers. Um, once I started making my own wines though, I, I knew that um, from what I was drinking, I I always appreciated the 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 lovely fruit characters in Australian wine and the givingness and the, the, the joy uh, in Australian wines and I wanted, I wanted to be part of that. But I also really loved the – I never really loved the sort of huge high-alcohol blockbuster and, and, and hugely oaky things um, and I was lucky enough to be exposed to in – in those days, there wasn't that many European – wines of quality in Australia but I did manage to to travel a bit and also get exposed to them a bit in Australia and I wanted to sort of also make wines with elegance and like a a prettiness about them Um, and uh, which is why we initially went went to Orange and um, which was just a fledgling um, region at the time Um, there was about five other producers there then Um, and uh, but I loved the, I'd tasted a Canobla Smith Chardonnay um, and it was, I went, yes, this is it. This is this is the type of stuff. And I'd been to Orange once before in my life to play rugby and we lost. So uh, um, I hadn't liked the place until then, but then I tasted this wine and absolutely loved it and went back up there and went, yeah, this place is great. Um, and so, you know, it it's a place where it's, very high altitude, 1,000 metres above sea level, uh, a lot of the grapes are. Um, uh, so very cool, but extremely sunny, um, being in the central west of New South Wales and all the weather, most of the weather comes from the west, pretty well all of it, it was desert for days. So you've got so much sunshine to ripen the grapes fully in most years, um, but such cool, slow ripening of them um, that it, it just seemed like a wonderful, unique, and an extinct volcano, a wonderful, unique tower uh, for, for me to, to be part of.
0: That's awesome. I mean, it, it is a beautiful space. And like you said, and, and Knobla Smith's had such a wonderful history. I, I'm glad that you mentioned them. But you decided to settle on the Central Ranges, knowing that that, that great wine could be produced there. But then you went and planted Tempranillo and Pinot Green Gewürz Traminer, which n- weren't necessarily what those <laughs> regions were known for. Why that mindset? Uh, look, I, I was,
1: I guess I was in my 20s and uh, I, I, I was really in love with wine. I became a winemaker because I loved wine. I loved drinking great wines and I was just really in love with you know, what What we could do, what we could get out of it, not not necessarily just reproducing. Although Canobla Smith had made these, you know, Murray had made these beautiful Chardonnays up there and the Bloodwoods, uh, the guys at Bloodwood, the Doyles, had made beautiful um, Rieslings and, and and Chardonnays as well and, and that sort of thing. And most of the red up there was Cabernet at that stage. Um, I, I thought there's... In a place like this, there's going to be, there's, you know, the world of wine is so rich. Um, there's a lot more that we could do well here. Um, and so, yeah, got very interested in seeing and being in my 20s, uh, sort of thought, you know, a vintage where we were harvesting something different every day for months is kind of fine, but you know, now that I'm in my fifties, it's a lot of work. But uh, but um, you know, they all all the wines worked in some way, and so we've still got we haven't we haven't thrown a variety out completely yet. Although our our plantings of Merlot and Cabernet have certainly diminished. Um, they're still there, and they're still the Merlot actually actually now our Mudgee. Our Merlot and Mudgee is um, one of my favourite batches of our wines, of our grapes every year. It's just also got very poor sales because Merlot just doesn't have a great reputation. So uh, I, I get sad whenever we graft over or do something or, or, or we um, plant one of the mudgy Merlot blocks because, the, you know, it has given me so much joy over the years, but you've got to be pragmatic too. And also I do get happy, you know, then putting Grenache in or something like that too, which is also going to make me happy.
0: Well, I actually think, you know, some of those medium bodied structural reds work really beautifully in Mudgee. And like you said, it, it's a spot where you can get really lovely ripeness, but some body as well. So, I can understand why you can get a little sad. And yeah, you know, Merlot does suffer from that little kind of sad sack reputation, but there's some beautiful Merlots made and I've had some of yours. And so, I think it's nice to keep a little bit of it alive.
1: We are. We are, definitely. But we're also planting a lot of other stuff here in, in Mudgee. Um, so Mudgee's, uh, more 600 metres and just below 600 metres altitude. Um, so still high, but not as high as orange. Um, and still the same amount of sunshine, huge diagonal temperature ranges, um, uh, more warmth, uh, about equal amount as cold as orange, but more warmth, so big, big day on the temperature range. And then really gravelly soils with um, lots of um, like red loam um, soils with a lot of ironstone and quartz gravels through them. So really interesting, good terroir of its own. And so we're doing more plantings here too. I mean, you, you mentioned Tempranillo, that's, that's largely been here in, in Mudgee. Um, also, the Grenache we've planted is here in Mudgee, but also looking at planting some things like um, Frapato here and Vidicchio and um, things like that. I think a lot of Mudgee's history has been based on history largely. So, um, there's been a lot of Cabernet and very oaky extracted reds being made here as well as the, you know, it was – the forefront of Italian winemaking or great varieties in Australia um, uh, with the Barbera and the Sangiovese and the uh, many other varieties that were planted here back in the 60s. But um, most people sort of know it for um, Tannic, Shiraz and Cab. Um, and the Shirazes particularly can be sensational, but I think when they're treated with a lighter hand and and, and – because we get – We know we get plenty of tannin here, so at Logan, what we do is try to try to build texture around those tannins and not over extract them and do a bit of whole bunch in there with it. Because once, if you can, if you can do that and release all the beautiful red and dark and blue, there's sort of red, red, black and blue fruits all in the spectrum of the Shiraz here, plus a whole lot of spices and a lot of earthiness and licorice and graphite and all that. So if you can, and tobacco, so if you can let them sing through and not swap them with too much oak and not extract too much tannin, you have these beautiful Shirazes that are actually medium bodied. And that's what we're pushing here and other varieties that sort of do a similar thing. And even lighter ones, we're looking at planting Frapato here. As sort of a, a, to be at the the particularly light end of the spectrum for this region.
0: Yeah, I mean, Mudgee has such a a great history and was, you know, a huge production that was very important to New South Wales. And I I remember Logan was some of the first wines I tried as a sommelier that kind of made me turn my head. There were some estates that my parents used to buy and I really enjoyed those wines. But I remember when your cellar door was built and uh, I tasted some of your wines under these labels that I didn't really expect, it definitely turned my head and went, hmm, maybe Mudgee, maybe I need to have another look. So tell me a little bit about building the cellar door and how did you go about it? defining you know Logan as a brand that was doing something you know slightly different from your peers
1: sure um, well yeah back in we we started building the door back in um, 2004 um, and so it started I started making our wines in 1997 um, and initially was initially was taking grapes from orange all the way to the hunter to make them because I was working on a winery in the Hunter. It's too far to go between the two. Um, and um, so then uh, when uh, this big uh, winery got built at Appletree Flat uh, in Mudgee here by Simon Gilbert as part of a public company, I went and got a job there so I could be closer to the grapes in Orange and just fell in love with the area here uh, in um, Mudgee and Actually, this is a nice story. Uh, my dad, who was a, who lived in the city all my life, but actually grew up uh, in Bathurst and was a country boy and loved the country, um, he came out to visit me after I'd done a night shift working on the, the winery at Apple Tree Flat for Simon Gilbert, and he bought me out a bacon and egg roll and a coffee. And we sat there on the hill uh, eating it, and he said, uh, what do you reckon of that? bit of land there at Hillside next door. Could you grow grapes on that? I said, oh yeah, that's a really good Hillside for grapes. He said, oh good. Cause I bought it in the pub last night and uh, he'd gone to the pub to watch some rugby. And uh, as he did, he'd talk to anyone and he started just talking to this guy. He turned out to be the guy who owned this block next door and they had a handshake agreement and followed through, And we've been here ever since. And um, so we then planted some Shiraz and Merlot initially. Uh, Now it's also got Tempranillo and Grenache on it. Um, And we built, set about building our cellar door. Well, building a wine storage shed first and then cellar door. And um, at the time, you know, all the cellar doors in Mudgee were all quite – I guess you'd say agricultural. They, they were um, very um, small, small buildings. Um, open sometimes um, that you couldn't see anything out from. Um, you just sort of were in the room, in the building. And we had this spot. And we, it's just the hills here are beautiful. It's just such a beautiful place. We were lucky that there was. There was nothing on the site, so we there was no history, and we didn 't have a long history, so we didn 't have to have any history we needed to honor really so so we could be completely fresh with our approach to it, which was our approach to our how our, our whole uh, wine making was was a a fresh approach, and our branding was a fresh approach, so we took the same approach to the cellar door and and stood up on the hill with the architect my wife my then wife Hannah, and I stood up at, on the hill with the architect and sort of pointed to the best bits of view and said you know make the most of that we want a building that that fits in with the landscape but where you see the beauty of Mudgy and apple tree flat here uh, and where you know you can have a hundred people at a at a function here 200 at a stand-up function but if there's one person in here doing a tasting it doesn't seem like they're standing in a big empty mausoleum um, and he did that and, um, and did a, a guy called Architect, Stephen Buzzacott and did a wonderful job um, bringing that to life. Uh, and it's been just a wonderful home for us ever since. You know, it's, we opened in a- April two, or at Easter 2006, and people still come in now. So 2023, so that's, what's that? Uh, 17, 17 years later and ask if we're new, if this is a new building, which is, you know, always makes me happy when that happens. One, it means we've looked after it. But um, two, just uh, it's, it's timeless design. Um, it's, yeah, so it's, it's a, a home that we're, we're really proud of and it really does, it, it does represent us. It, it, if you look at the building, you do get a feel for who we are.
0: Yeah, I'd agree with that. And it is absolutely stunning spot and makes total use of the landscape and and its gorgeous viewpoint. That deck is just heaven. What I love also about what I think Logan has done really well is that because of your energy and vibrancy, um, through your wines and what you do, it it kind of – it gives you a point of difference with the other wines as well and and what made me turn my head back to Mudgee and then I would look at Huntington State and Craigmore wines that I grew up with that I – really have a special place in my heart and it made me want to revisit those wines too. So now when someone heads out to Mudgee, I say, you must visit Huntington. You must head out to Logan for a meal and taste their wines. And it really, you know, it gives you such a nice spectrum. There's something for everybody there. And, um, it's really important that we just have lots of points of difference that that celebrate all the different, you know, stylistic differences of each winery. Um, and there's just so much happening, and, it, and it's really exciting.
1: Yeah, I, I'd I'd agree with that. Um, definitely, um, we we recommend uh, other wineries a lot. We're the first one as you come into town, so a lot of people ask us for guidance on what's in town. And and yeah, the history of of, of things like Huntington and Craigmore is 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 one thing, and it's one, and that's a wonderful thing. You know, Craigmore, the the uh, first Chardonnay vines in Australia. Um, uh, The Tills won't agree with that, but it's true. Um, (laughs) And um, uh, the the wonderful wines that have come out of Huntington since you know the '60s, Um, just uh, a great part of history. But same with the modern day wines coming out of there. You know. Mm. Um, Tim Stevens is doing a fantastic job at Huntington these days. Um, The Oatleys are doing good stuff with Craigmore. Um, So, yeah, and like it's a very – one thing about Orange is it's a really collegiate region. I really like that about it, that everyone – all the winemakers do get on with each other um, and help each other out. Um, like just yesterday, actually, yesterday I had lunch uh, with, it was John Francois, who's the winemaker at Skimstone, so I had, which is one of our neighbours here. I had lunch there with him. And um, Jacob Steen, who's the own, owner of Robert Steen Wines and Sarah Yates, who's one of the the family from the Yates wines. Um, So we all get together and help each other out and and recommend each other. And not all the wines are the same, and that's a good thing. Um, But we do do a lot of benchmarking together and talk about what the region can do well and should do better and can um can focus on and what maybe doesn't work here. Um mm. so it's not about everyone making the same wine, but it's about everyone understanding the terroir they're in and then making their own signature wines that that use that terroir, are shaped by that terroir in a positive way.
0: Yeah, I I th- I think Majus a place that you have to visit. It has one of most, the most authentic um senses of true hospitality i think um the people are the salt of the earth and really genuinely happy that you're visiting i went i've had a couple of great nights at pubs where i've got to chat to locals and you know one thing's led to another and next minute you've made a best friend but um i also did go out to the Galgong races at one time and that was an awakening that was truly something something else I mean I remember trampling through the the mud um and watching these women in these like four inch heels like you know staggering through these cow pats and they were dressed up to the nines and I was so impressed it was freezing I was like my gosh but they were out and they were out for a good time and it was awesome
1: <laughs> yeah there's not that many excuses to dress up like that you gotta gotta do it
0: absolutely so much commitment yeah <laughs> I want to briefly touch on your range because you have five ranges of wines. They're all really cleverly marketed because they all have a real point of difference. There's something in them for everyone. Can you briefly just run them, run us through them?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so um, ah, should I start at the bottom or the top? Um, why don't I? I'll, I'll I'll work. I'll start at the bottom and work the way up. So we've got our uh, Apple Tree Flat range. Um, by bottom, I mean price point. Um, so that's our, our entry level, um, price point. And what we um, it's largely, um, fruit from around the, the mudgy region here. Um, hence it's called apple tree flat, but sometimes some of our orange fruit, uh, makes it into it, um, for one reason or another, um, um, usually to do with yield. Um, and, um, What we're really trying to do there and why we did it originally was, oh, God, we started that range back in, I don't know, about the year 2003 or something or four. And we noticed at the time, might have been even earlier, we noticed at the time that, well, one, there was a lot of grapes around at the time, um, and we noticed that um, a lot of the inexpensive wines we just didn't like. And my friends would say to me, you know what what why is that why don't I like these wines? It's not just the flavor it 's just the whole style of them and it was basically sugar and and no acid um, was the was the difference and so we went out making this our entry level in the same style that we make the rest of our wines. sure you can't make them exactly the same but in the same style, so it's just as dry uh, and with the same fresh acid um, but just n- d- not going into oak and, you know, you got to be careful with your yields on the vineyards and stuff so that you you can still sell it at that price, but that sort of thing. And, and the varieties you choose is based on that too. Um, and then uh, you – and so there's lovely uh, – there's aromatic whites, there's um, – Chardonnay and there's Shiraz and Merlot. So more your standard varieties. Um, and then um, you move up to our Wimala range, which has always been probably, I guess it's it's been our most successful range um, uh, in every market we sell in. Um, it um, seems to hit uh, we, we designed it designed, designed the label originally because we, I was making the wines. Basically, in my mind, they were to be sort of by the glass in bistro type places, and so the label is this. We actually took uh, took an old sake, old Saki label into the designers, which has you know big graphic black on the black Japanese print on white background, and that was the inspiration for this little white bird, uh, black birds on this white background, um, and. The idea was that it was a simple but timeless label that looked looked expensive on the table, but the wine isn't super expensive. Um, but is at a price where you know it can still be by the glass in in in, in inexpensive restaurants, um, but has really good quality wine in it and is and, and interesting. Um, so Gewürztraminer, um Riesling that's on the sort of up. Uh, the upper level of German Trocken um, rating. Um, uh, Pinot Noir at a price that most Pinot Noir doesn't taste like Pinot Noir. Uh, Shiraz Viognier, uh, Tempranillo, um, things like that. and then um, you've got our above that you've got our Logan Range, which is just a, I forget to call it the Estate Range. We call it the Embroidery Range because all the labels are embroidered. Um, and that is our original range when we started back in 1997 um, with just the grapes in Orange. Before we were in Mudgee, that was our just that was our our core range there. And so we've just stuck with that as it is. Um, and they they're really um, Orange Heroes, really. Um, Sauvignon Blanc, which I think Orange does wonderfully. Um, uh, Chardonnay, which most people think it does wonderfully. Um, Pinot Noir, Shiraz, Cab Merlot, Anna Rosé. And I guess the sparkling sort of in that range. It sits in that range. Um, So really, Orange Classic, Orange Heroes done really well. And then... um, Uh, our, we've got our Clementine range, uh, which is our newest range. Clementine is my now nine year old daughter. Um, and, uh, luckily I've only got one child, so I can name a range of wines after her. Um, be a bit awkward if I had more, or we'd have a lot more ranges. Um, so, and it's, uh, I guess I don't like the word natural. I guess i Uh, or even orange for natural wines. I guess I use amber. Um, But, you know, essentially those words are just a guide to how the wines are made is more for me. Um, And so these wines are like a Pinot Gris fermented on skins, a white blend, blend of four whites fermented on skins, um, uh, a chilled red, um, and a multi-varietal red blend that yeah that's chilled um and they they're all unfined and unfiltered and um, just get a hit of sulfur they do get sulfur but they get basically big hit uh, i mean a hit just before bottling but um you know they're not for us the important thing is what we're trying to do what we love about a lot of the styles of those wines is like uh is not the esotericness um it's the beauty that you get when you say make a white as if you're making a red. Um, the textures and the flavours, um, you know, the ones I love are things like Gravna and, and wines like that. And I've never tasted a fault in a Gravna. Um, and that's, you know, we're, we're, that's what we're wanting to, I'm not saying you drink ours and it's like drinking a Gravner, but that it's that philosophy that we're, we're showing the beauty that you get from making, wines in this way like where you, where they're unfiltered and you get the texture from that and where you're fermenting whites on skins and, and you're exposing to a lot more oxygen um, but for us, if there's any Brettanomyces, if there's any mousy taint uh, if there's noticeable volatile acidity then we've got it wrong and you won't taste them in our wines and then our top range is called Ridge of Tears, um, just been re-released. We had it for years. It was just a Shiraz from our Orange Vineyards and a Shiraz from our Mudgee Vineyards, showing the terroir difference. I loved that, but it was hard. We making, uh, we've been, particularly since um, my current winemaking partner, Chris Jessup, has come on board, we've really been premiumizing our Riesling uh, offering and really wanted to Put a Riesling up at that level and a Chardonnay, and um, so we decided to change what Ridgeties was about, and it's it's no longer just a Shiraz from Orange and a Shiraz from Mudgy. It's just our best wines, which at the moment the twenty ones have been um, released, and that's a Riesling from Orange, a, Ries- a Chardonnay from Orange, and a Shiraz from Mudgee. Um and they're they're quite. Different stylistically to a lot of the wines of those varieties from the regions. Um, the Riesling uh, spends a year in oak, uh, wild fermented, everything we do is wild yeast ferment, uh, and it spends a year in in old oak and then a year in bottle before we, on full leaves and then a year in bottle before we release it. Um, and it's picked as, as ripe as we can, um, and um, rather than picked earlier, as a lot of top Australian Rieslings are. And then we leave, again, it's a sort of a German dry balance where there is some sugar in there balancing out the rather high natural acid. Uh, the Chardonnay is fermented in concrete with just a little bit fermented in oak and is very tight and linear. And then the the mudgy Shiraz is a particularly... Uh, I guess, elegant, uh, medium-bodied style of Maji Shiraz, but with a lot of depth to it.
0: Yeah, what I love about your whole ranges, which I think is really um, poignant for people listening in, is that all of your wines at their range and their price point have a lot of bang for their buck so i'm talking from the um, apple tree flat 14 dollars merlot i mean you were hard pressed to find a better merlot around that price point i think all the way up through you know from the wimala all the way up to your to your logan brand they all just for the price they command they just have that added layer of texture and weight and persistence and drive. And I just think that the prices are, are pretty amazing. I've always thought with your Clementine label, it was interesting. Um, I knew that you had uh, named that after your daughter, but I always thought with the, those wines, and it has to do a lot with the marketing and the beautiful labels, but I always just thought this is the curiosity and wonder of kind of the approach of what a child like mindset would be when they're kind of wandering through a vineyard you know stopping to look at the butterflies and just that real kind of wondrous nature of the world and I I love those wines because I think that they make you just kind of rather than pull them apart and think about all these different components they just make you think stop and think how good is wine how incredibly delicious is this that's in this bottle.
1: Well, thank, thank you for saying that. And that is largely how we started making them. Um, the origins of the Clementine wines really started uh, a lot before the wines hit the market. Um, basically, uh, before, um, back in 2012, uh, it was 2011, I think. 2011, 2012, Uh, my winemaking partner I had with us here then was Duncan Lloyd, who has now gone back to his family winery, Coriole, and has Coriole and Dune down there. Uh, But Dunk spent six years up here with us, and um, I think I learnt as much from him as he learnt from me. Um, And we were sitting around chatting one day. I think we were having a glass of Pinot Noir and talking about how everyone make, tries to make their Pinot Noir the most complex wine they have, yet their Pinot Gris they just sort of crush, throw the skins away, ferment it quickly, bang it in bottle, and bang it out. And we were talking about how there was only one, one genetic mutation difference be, different between Pinot Noir and Pinot Gris. So we went; it was just before vintage, and we went, "Well, let's ferment some Pinot Gris." as as if it's Pinot Noir this year and see what happens. And we've always done a lot of experiments and it's a good thing about having a tiered system where you've got wines at different price points that you do, do uh, uh, some sort of um, approach that you haven't done before with one tonne of fruit and if it works, it's great. If it doesn't, you'll be able to, you'll be able to still use it somewhere um, and then not reproduce it the next year. If it does work, you reproduce it larger the next year. And so we've always done a lot of that. And back in 2012, I think it was, we started fermenting, the. we did a ton of Pinot Gris uh, on skins and we played around with it for a few years before we fine-tuned it and then just started. And, and I think 2013, we started, we just put, Every single white that came in, we fermented a tonne of it on skins um, just to see what they'd all do. And they all had very different tex- uh, uh, tannin structures, which was one thing that I hadn't banked on so much. And that was a big part of the difference between them. The flavours, of course, but the tannin structures, which you never see when you're, you're not fermenting on the skins. Uh, and then we started doing a whole bunch of ferments with every batch of whites that came in and stuff like that. So it is kind of what you described there. It is like what can we, what can we get out of this thing? And it's not about, like I said, it's not about being different or esoteric. It's just what what other joyful flavors and textures can we can we get from it?
0: Yeah, you, de- you that definitely comes across. And and then like you said, you've got so many um, interesting techniques you're using, but your wines have always been incredibly clean. Um, without technical faults um, and reliable wines, which I always appreciate, especially being a buyer, you know, for restaurants day in, day out. You, it's wonderful when you come across those brands where you almost, you taste them because, of course, you need to describe them to to your guests of what they're like, but you kind of start to get to know them and go, I can't wait for the Rigid Tears, you know, to be released. Thank God you did a Riesling. The first time I came across that wine, I was like, it's about time. Um, <laughs>
1: But um Well we've just um you tasted the twenty-one. Uh we we haven't released the twenty-two yet, but it's it's in the middle of its twelve months in bottle before I release it. And I sent it over to uh the best of Riesling Challenge in Germany in Falz. Uh and uh last month flew over there to pick up the trophy for the best new world riesling.
0: Amazing. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. So that was, uh, uh, that obviously, the Germans didn't mind our approach to it either.
0: That's pretty scary, first of all, and brave of you to do so. And what a wonderful result that you should be really proud. And that's very exciting. And I can't wait to taste it. Peter, I'd like to know a little bit more about your palate. If you could only drink three beverages for the rest of your life, what would they be and why? Mm, okay.
1: Right. Tough question. Good question. Tough question. Um, I'm going to rule out coffee, um, even though it's important, but once after a month, that headache could go away and you'd be right. Um, so it's not going to be there. I I am a big champagne Jane. I love champagne. Um, you know, it, of all the sparklings, it's it's certainly the one I love the most, but I also love a beer. I don't love that many sessions on beers these days, but I do love to kick off particularly on a hot day with a beer. So I think my beer is going to have to take the place of champagne, which is hard to say. But um, And beer for me, I love lagers and Pilsners and that sort of style, Kohl style lagers particularly, where you can almost taste the ferment character in them. Something like that would be my beer. And that'd also be my whole bubbly spectrum. Um, then I think, while I love Shardy. I love Shannon. I love Sam. I love so many white varieties. I'd have to be moving to, to wine then. The other two would have to be wines. Um, so for, if, I, if it's going to be the rest of my life, um, well, I do love gin and things that it'd have to be wine. Um, and I think I'd have to go for the white It'd have to be a German style Riesling. It um, doesn't have to be from Germany, but that sort of style of Riesling. Um, just the complexity, um, the mixture of complexity and freshness um, and age worthiness and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's, yeah, that's where I'd be there. And then, hmm tough because um, I, I then moved to a red. I do love to, at home, I've, I've always got a white and a red open. So if I'm having a gla- two glasses of wine at home in a night, it's always one glass of white and one glass of red. Um, so um, it'd have to be a red. It couldn't be too heavy um, if it's for one for the rest of my life and it couldn't be too light. Um, so while I love things like Mavedra and I love Triga National, and I love light things like Pinot Noir and I love all that. Nebbiolo could sort of work in the middle but I think we've just planted Grenache here in Mudgee for a reason and that's because I do really love Grenache. as that fruity, medium-bodied option in there that just has so much joy but you can also get lovely textures as well. Um, So I'll go with the Grenache.
0: Hmm. It. I agree with you in terms of if you. It kind of ticks all the boxes. It's going to work kind of on whatever day you kind of feel. So it's 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 a wine that yeah it has lots of occasion to it and you can still drink it on its own too. I like that. Well, three awesome choices, and uh, I yeah wouldn't really have thought anything else from you to be quite honest. So. It's been such a pleasure chatting, getting to know you a little bit more and hearing from you. Uh, I've long been a fan, will stay a fan of your wines. And uh, I'm also hearing on the grapevine that you are opening another cellar door out in Orange.
1: Actually, yes. So we've had one, our one in Mudge's, I mentioned um, since 2006. We actually opened last Friday, finally, um, a cellar door uh, at the – on the Cargo Road in Orange. It's the closest cellar door to town in Orange. Um, we're, um, and it's uh, we've just been doing a bit of work on it and got it. It's looking beautiful. Uh, it's not a big building, but uh, – and it's got a uh, – like the one in Mudgee, it's a lot about the outside area. But it, like the one in Mudgee, it's also a lovely architecturally designed building. Um, so if any, ever in, anyone's ever in the Orange region and looking for a glass of wine or to fill the boot, just head just a couple of minutes out of town on the cargo road and you'll see uh, Logan sell door there.
0: I love that theme. The closest, it's like the closest is you're heading from Sydney and now from Orange. So that's a very strategic maneuver and uh, a very, very good idea.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, yeah, lo- location, 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 right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so they say. <laughs> Thank you so much, Peter. It's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I look forward to our paths crossing again and thank you for your time today.
1: Thank you very much, Shante. I I agree with that. I would love to see you again.
0: Cheers to you, Peter. This is Over a Glass. I'm Shante Whale. Stay tuned for more stories from the world of wine and drinks. Listen in every Thursday on your podcast app. Follow us on Instagram at overaglasspod.com And contact us at overaglass at deepintheweeds.com.au.